I assume that most of us, if we were going to host a dinner party for dignitaries, perhaps a president or a king or queen of some foreign nation, we would prepare our homes and dinner a little differently than we would for a friend who's been to our house a million times. I would assume that we would all know that who we're preparing for makes a difference in how we prepare for them to come. And that is why today's passage is really, really so important for us to hear and to read and to know. We started last week the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to extend that from verse 1 to verse 8 this week. This is the story or the the connecting piece of John the Baptist. I want to read that for us and we'll dive right into it. Again, this is Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 2. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you. With the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to tell you, I don't believe that this passage is primarily about John the Baptist. The reason for that is because if you go back to verse 1, which we looked at last week, and you read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then you jump to 2 verse 8 and automatically assume that this is about a guy named John, then you must think Mark has ADD. Because he did not make it one verse before digressing and going off in some other direction. Now, ADD didn't exist when Mark was writing, I don't think. Sort of a modern construct of a bunch of issues that we run into today. But what I do know is that Mark moves from Jesus, verse 1, into John, heading into verse 4 very quickly. And the reason for that is because Mark believes that the story of John does not tell us something we need to know about John. It tells us something that we need to know about Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What does this passage show us about Jesus? None of us are going to get to heaven and and say, hey, I, I have my place here because I know a lot about John the Baptist. Right? No, we're going to get to heaven and they're going to say, why are you here? He said, because I know Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at that today. Mark is not already detouring away from Jesus to tell us about John. He's telling us about Jesus through John. And let me just tell you, I don't think there's a greater role in the history of our faith, aside from 
Jesus' role himself as Savior than to prepare the way for Jesus. I think that is a role that that should be honored amongst men and in the church. And we look at John and we see that role. And the reality is, and you may guess this by the end of the sermon, I think that's a role we are all called to as well. And I pray that we would see that today. I pray that you would see that today. That our role as Christians is not just to attend a church or be present with the people of God, but it is to also, like John, prepare the way. The question is, for whom are we preparing the way? What Jesus are we going to prepare the way for? I pray that we would point to the same Jesus we see in the page here today. We're going to see four things about Jesus that I pray we would carry from us and with us as we go from this place later today. The first thing that I think John's ministry here points to in Jesus is that the Jesus he's pointing to is the Jesus of Scripture. He is the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus that has been foretold of Proclaimed about, prophesied towards, and promised through history. We see in verse 2, starting in verse 2, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. What we see here attributed to Isaiah is is a, a quote out of the book of Isaiah, but it's also a quote out of the book of Malachi. The first half is out of Malachi, the second half being out of Isaiah. Not sure why Mark didn't say both, but that's just the way it is. One of the things we should always do, and and especially I think in the book of Mark, where we're going to see so few quotes out of the Old Testament, is as we read the New Testament and the New Testament writer gives us something out of the Old Testament, we should think, you know what? I should go look that up. I should go find that. I should go see what that says. The reason for that is not just because we want to see if these words carry through. It's because so often when a New Testament writer uses an Old Testament quote, they're not just referring to the narrow words that they give us in their quote. They're actually taking an entire section or theme of Scripture and saying, hey, it said all of this. You should be aware of it. So let us look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. A reminder that the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and it is the last statement of God to his people for hundreds of years. There is utter silence as far as prophecy and word from the Lord goes, from the ending of the book of Malachi to the beginning of the book of Matthew, and of course Mark, which tells the same story. And so what we see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There is a promise that, that the one is coming. 
The one who you seek, that's the Messiah, the Savior. They've been waiting for him all the way since the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, when there is a child promised that will crush Satan's head. And as the Old Testament story marches through, you see that promise reiterated over and over and over again. The one that we're waiting for, he will come suddenly into the temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. Now let me just point out that this section begins back in chapter 2, verse 17, when it says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say... How have you wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the God of justice? In other words, the people of Israel have wearied their God by attributing goodness to those who are doing evil and in the same breath asking where is God's justice? Where is the God of justice. Why is he not here? Why is there silence? And that's where we get these verses in chapter 3, 1, that the messenger is coming. There is a messenger who will prepare the way for the actual Savior who comes, but here's the warning. Chapter, or verse 2 and on, we read that the Savior who's coming is not going to come and save. He is going to come and judge. That gets... Really exciting as you get to verses five, where it says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Wait a minute, the Messiah that we've been waiting for all this time, the one who has come is going to do what when he gets here? He's going to draw near to you for judgment with swift witness against those. Ah, but there is good news in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to judge quickly. But because God is who God always has been, there will be grace. He won't consume his children, but he will save his children. He will rescue them. See, this uh, quote in Malachi 3.1 leads us through all of this, but we have to go find it in order to learn all of that. That combines with the passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is one that often gets read around Christmas time. It says this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's the part we see in the book of Mark. It goes on to say, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, the mouth of the Lord has promised that there is a messenger who is coming who will make straight the paths of the way of the Lord. Now we can picture this, right? We live in the mountains. There are places where it is hard to get to, right? If you're hiking or traversing, you're going through, there's low spots full of mud. There's, there's high spots that are craggy and hard to get over. 
And what we're told is the messenger will come and make easier those paths. He will raise up those low spots. He'll make them flat. He will lower those high spots. And we all know it is far easier to walk down the street than it is to go climb a mountain. And that's the picture that we should have of the messenger who will come to prepare the way of the Lord. They are coming to make it easier for people to come and for the Lord to come into people's lives. Amen? So Mark's point here is clear. There is a messenger. He has been promised. And that messenger is going to lead to the Messiah who has been promised, to the Savior, one who will come and judge the evil, but who will also bring grace to those who need it and salvation. This is, as Mark says at the very beginning of his gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One of the things I was thinking about as I thought about the way that God has moved in history is it's very often the same way that God moves in our lives. For some of us, we came to Christ years, years and years after we were born. At an older age, or in the 20s or 30s or 40s, after we had lived, after we had sinned, after we had strayed. And one of the things that I often hear from people who came to Christ later in their life is they say, suddenly God was real to me. Suddenly I knew him. Suddenly, right, I was saved. They say it's like the first time God just showed up. But then as years go by and they reflect on that and they reflect on their life before Jesus, what they start seeing is that he had been at work all the way through. Amen? Or that there are moments that only with their eyes open, having been saved and the Holy Spirit working their lives, that they look back and they see that God had been there the whole time. For some of us, we became Christians at a younger age. And for some of us, we managed to stay faithful all the way through, praise the Lord. Some of us, we came to Christ at a younger age and we may have strayed. And, and as we re-solidify, the same thing happens. We look back and we realize, well, God was there even when I was running. Even when I had strayed, even when I went and did something different, he was right there the whole time. This is what we see. This is the God of Scripture. He's always been there. He's always been working. Jesus isn't a new idea as we come into the New Testament. He has been laying this down, the groundwork for it, the prophecies for it, the truth of it for thousands of years. And Mark says it's all coming now. So the first thing we see in this is that the Jesus that Mark is presenting, the Jesus that John the Baptist is preparing for, is the Jesus of Scripture. The only way to know this Jesus is to be in Scripture and to see that and to know that. All right, that's the first thing. The second thing we see in this of Jesus is that his work is imminent. His work is imminent. Now, imminent's not a word we use very often. In fact, I don't think anybody ever uses that word in a modern context. What it basically means is it could happen right now. <laughs> and now it could happen right now. 
And now it could happen right now, right? It, it means that it's about to happen or that it could be right on the edge. And, and what I love about this idea is that, first of all, Mark presents John as being imminent first. He says, verse 4, John appeared, baptized in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's like John like wasn't there and then suddenly he was there. And he's doing this thing and he just rolls forward. Well, that's the exact way that we experience Jesus. He wasn't there. Now he is. And it can be very sudden and very quick. But John, for John, Jesus is imminent. And his ministry is imminent. In scripture, we see the coming of the Lord having been prophesied. We've been waiting for it for hundreds of years. Anticipated, wondering at it. When will it come And John's arrival says, it's coming very soon. And we see this. We see this in in John, that, that Jesus' work is about to begin. And we see this in a few ways in his life. And I want to kind of fast track through these. We're going to look at these a little bit more as we move forward. But the first thing way we see that, the first way that we see John preparing for the imminence of Jesus is in his words. Verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's proclaiming his words, saying, uh, uh, speaking about a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Moving on to verse 7, it says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is proclaiming. His words are pointing to what Jesus is about to do. And that has a lot to do with forgiveness and with repentance, with confession, and of course, with baptism. The second thing that we see in this passage, as far as John preparing the way, is in his life and his actions. His life is about this coming Jesus. Look at verse 6. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John looked different. He looked different, right? He, nobody else was doing that. Now, there were a few others who were wandering around the wilderness wearing camel's hair and preaching. John actually is in a long line of, of those who were doing that. But it was pretty rare. It was not like the, the, the style of the day was camel hair with a leather belt. And it's not like the food of the day that everybody was like, yo, sign me up for locusts and wild honey. He's doing something different. And in the midst of doing something different, it demonstrates a whole lot about who the one he's preparing for will be. Let me look at that in just a sec. The other thing that he, that you sway, you see this, the third way you see this in his life is through humility, right? You see in John an utter humility towards Jesus, He says in verse seven, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Even comparing ministries, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is everything about this Jesus is better than everything about me. And he's pointing forward. 
And the thing is, is all of this tells us something about the one he's preparing for. The words in the life of someone appointed to prepare the way say a lot about the one being prepared for. John does not show up on a fancy horse with gleaming tack, wearing fancy flowing robes and jewelry. He did not uh, have someone who every morning woke up and perfectly did his hair, made sure there was no blemish on his skin, and when he smiled at you, his teeth didn't glow. Instead, he came wearing camel's hair, a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. A rough simplicity to this description. What we know, as I mentioned, camel's hair was, was what wilderness preachers wore. And many commentators talk about the idea of eating locusts and wild honey as a clear example that John was demonstrating a, 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 basically a parable of life. That when Israel wandered in the desert, one of the foods they would have eaten was locusts. You think about wild honey, finding anything you could find, but even more so than that across the Jordan River. While Israel wandered in the wilderness in sin and brokenness, having refused the generosity and the grace of God, they had been promised a a land flowing rich with milk and honey. See, John's very life pointed to Jesus. The same way that we've talked now, I think three weeks in a row or two weeks in a row on what it looks like to share, show the gospel boldly with our lives. This was what John was doing with his very life. Why? Because Jesus was imminent. He was about to show up. He was about to begin his ministry. And here's the truth, friends. Jesus is always imminent. He was then and he still is now. In the very real truth, we can talk about his second coming. And we don't know when that second coming is going to be. As I said, I think last week, if you meet somebody who pretends to know when that is, you know they're wrong because Jesus says we don't know. But what he does tell us is that we need to be ready. We need to be ready. We need to be ready because he, his return might be imminent. But in a very another real way, I want to share that I believe Jesus' work also is still very much imminent. We don't know how he's going to work. We don't know when he's going to work. And we don't know in whom he is going to work today, tomorrow, this week, this month, or this year. And the question is, are we preparing the way for Jesus to work in the lives of the people around us, our kids, our grandkids, other family members, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers? Is there anybody in your life that you have given up on the chance that God is going to work in them? Because it's been 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years to say, well, God doesn't work yet. He's not going to work today. How do you know? We worship a Jesus who is imminent. He, He could work in a whole new way, in a whole new person at any moment. And the awesome thing is that we, like John the Baptist, get to be a part of it. Because he is imminent. He has called us to work in such a way. All right, the third thing we see about Jesus in this passage through John is that Jesus is worthy of repentance. 
Jesus is worthy of repentance. Look at verse five through six. It says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, it says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem. Now, this does not mean that every person in Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. What this means is that all kinds of people were. People of every walk of life, rich people, poor people, people who were deep in sin and people who kind of thought they were mostly righteous. People who had jobs, people didn't, people with disabilities, people without disabilities, this is everybody. They were all going out and what we see is that all of them who were willing to hear John talk about their need to repent, confessed their sins and were baptized. Now I'll tell you, there were those who went out to see the spectacle of John the Baptist and the crowds gathered. There were those who were actually told the Pharisees went out to see and to see what he was doing and to figure out whether or not he was a threat to them. None of them had eyes to, eat, to see or ears to hear. But those who went out and had eyes to see and ears to hear heard the message that the one coming is worth turning your life around for. They heard the message that there was something in their life, maybe a lot of somethings, that, that, that Jesus is worth turning away from. That's what repentance ultimately means. It means to turn from the path that you're going and, and to go to one new path, particularly the path of Jesus. And so in doing so, to confess sin, to say, I'm doing this thing or I've got this hard attitude or whatever it is, I don't want that in my life anymore. I'm going to do things his way instead. That's, that's what this means. And as a result, they were then baptized to proclaim to the world that a change had taken place. And that's the same reason that we baptize now as a proclamation of what's already taken place in our lives, that the forgiveness has already come and, and that our faith is already secure. Friends, Jesus is worthy of repentance. He is worthy of looking at our lives and saying, you know what, that part of my life that I cherish, that I love, is not a part that should still be a part of me. And so that's what we see in our gospel here. And that's one of the ways that John makes straight the paths of the people. And it's one of the ways he makes straight the paths of Jesus into the hearts and minds of people. As they confess their sins, the, the doors are opened for the Lord to work. And the same thing is true for us today. The fourth thing that we see in John, as we consider who Jesus is, is that Jesus is greater than anything and anybody. He is greater than anything and he is greater than anybody. Verse seven through eight, it says, and he preached saying after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Friends, John the Baptist knows his place in comparison to Jesus. And here's the thing. John the Baptist is likely the most famous, most prolific preacher in that time until Jesus begins his ministry. John has more people following him, following after him and learning from him than any teacher in maybe hundreds of years. John was a big deal. And so when John says like, I'm not even 
worthy to untie the strap of the sandals who's coming. We should take that seriously. The stunning thing about what he says there, and we miss this in our modern context, because for us, it's just a sandal and it's just footwear. But a Jew in that day and that time would not untie, stoop down and untie somebody else's sandals. It was a sign of utter servant, servitude, that's the right word. It was a sign of utter humility. It was reserved for the lowliest of servants, so much so that most Jews wouldn't even be those servants at the time. And John says, look, I don't even measure up enough to be the servant who might untie that man's sandals. The stunning thing about that is that John does not know, and it will come after John's death, is that Jesus will be the very one who will later stoop down and untie the sandals of his feet, of his disciples' feet, and then wash those very feet. And not only that, but Jesus will lay his own life down because of love in servant to servitude to his disciples to save them from their sins. This is a great irony of, of John in this moment. And, and I love the, that this is there and that John says these words because of what it shows me is that John didn't even know everything about the Jesus he was preparing for. There are so many times when we as Christians, we've been Christians 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and we still read something in Scripture and suddenly we realize something entirely new about Jesus. And it's always been there, but our hearts never grasped it. Let me tell you, if John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, can get this wrong, can get something wrong in here and not quite be sure what Jesus is going to be about, so can we. See, for, for John, he can't even picture that the greatness of Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to have to do, and that's die on the cross for your sins and for my sins and for the world's sins. John adds to that, of course, in verse 8. He says, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, look, my baptism, it's just, it's just about getting wet in comparison to what Jesus' baptism will be. As, as not only do you get wet in those waters, but he will give you the Spirit in those moments as well. And I love this because this actually ties us again straight back to the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, Joel chapter 2, we're actually told that when the Messiah comes, the new kingdom comes, that, the, that God will give his spirit to his people. John's done his homework. And because of that, he can proclaim who this Jesus is. He's prepared the way so that Jesus' paths into the hearts and the minds of these people, the people he's preaching to, will be straight and narrow and flat. Friends, we look at these verses, and I know there's always a temptation when we come across a, a passage like this to say, all right, how can we be like John? <laughs> this isn't about John. This is about Jesus. But the question for us as we finish out our time is this. What do our lives say? How do our lives prepare the way for Jesus? What do our lives say about who Jesus is? What do our church life say about who Jesus is? I mean, there's a lot of Jesuses in this world that get proclaimed. 
And one of the questions that we have to look at is what Jesus we're going to proclaim. Right? Are we going to proclaim the American Jesus? Are we going to proclaim the prosperity Jesus? Are we going to proclaim the Jesus of good feelings and goodwill? Or are we going to proclaim the Jesus of Scripture? The one that we see in John voiced that leads us to the confession of sins, repentance, to new life, to the Holy Spirit's empowerment. I pray that we would be people together and as individuals that would prepare the way for the Jesus that we read about in Scripture. And I pray that we would do that together. Amen?